So are you going to ask me a series of questions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. that makes it better. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't want to wing it or I'll <laughs> no, just start no, no. talking about no, no, no. how I think the Cubs are going to choke and lose the World Series and make us all disappointed again. <laughs> they already lost game one. I know, I heard. Big time, too. 6 nothing. Uh, actually, let's go sit over Sure. To the Observer Effect, a podcast of travel stories. Each week, we hope to bring you a conversation with someone we meet overseas. And at least one good story. Episode 69, A Wild Olive Shoot, Grafted In, Spain, where Mike came to build a church. In the book Silence by Shusaku Endo, the Portuguese missionary who's the main character melts at his reception among the Japanese farmers he's come to convert. Desperate from his difficult journey and anticipating the violent resistance of local authorities, he whispers, One of you spoke words of warm consolation for my traveling thousands of miles of sea over such a long period to come to your country. Mike has had a different experience, but the journey to share your faith always changes you. Can you describe your appearance first? Seriously? Mm -hmm. I guess. On the recorder? (laughs) Yeah. Are we on? Yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. (laughs) My appearance? Yeah, I want the audience to, oh, to have draw an a mental picture as they listen to you. Well, I'm pretty good looking. No. <laughs> uh, uh, <clears throat> well, I'm 5'10, 5'11 with shoes. Uh, I, uh, dark hair, dark eyes, brown eyes, dark brown hair. Yeah, I'm pretty solidly built. I weigh about 225 pounds but it's not all it's not all beef it, oh it is muscle it's some, most you're of very it. muscly yeah sure. i'd like to think so <laughs> yeah so anyways in, in your occupation maybe this is a strange question but i've, I've wondered this do uh-huh. you think about your appearance very much are you conscious about the way you appear yeah um my tendency is to not care about it too much unfortunately sure because that's just my nature but thank god i have a wife who will catch me before i leave the house and say no you can't wear that you need to go iron your shirt or that doesn't match and so she's helped me to become a little more conscious about that so but given my occupation you're saying yeah yeah well the fact that we're here in spain i mean i don't want to draw unnecessary attention to myself by looking too american so, I mean, but they do really have a high standard of style here compared to the norm in the U.S. Have you lost something in your appearance or or added something? like? I think that I am more, I think now I'm more self-conscious about, not self-conscious, but more conscientious about trying to look put together, but not look too dressy at the same like a business casual I don't know yeah yeah yeah. that makes sense 
Yeah. Have um, you bought many Spanish clothes, or do you still use American clothes mostly? All my clothes are from a Spanish store of sorts, yeah. Spanish mall. Yeah. I mean, you know, I just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just is what it is. I mean, now somehow I manage to oddly still look American occasionally, but <laughs> that's just by default. Let's, so. let's venture out onto this branch. What yeah. is an American look? What does that mean? <laughs> Probably sloppy. Okay. <laughs> when when you tell when you tell people from Spain that you can go to Walmart in the U.S. and people are there in their pajamas, mm. they can't. They can't fathom that. Yeah. We had a Belgian, a couple from Belgium, there, over to our there's, house. There's a guy walking by in a suit with a pipe behind us right now. I He's just probably just enjoying out. the evening. Yeah. He probably has nothing going on. Yeah. He just, he just looks that nice. <laughs> I mean, I told uh, this friends of ours who are from Belgium. They came over to the house, and I showed them the website called thepeopleofwalmart.com, <laughs> and they couldn't believe yeah. that people would actually be caught in public. Anyways, and I'm not picking on Americans, but it's just... That's why I was wary of going uh, out on this limb. But, no. It, but no, it's true. I mean, there's a difference. It's it's true. I mean, and, and you know, and so I don't want to turn people off either, just being a, a Christian and wanting to use every opportunity I can to talk about Jesus. I don't want my appearance to turn them off from being willing to speak to me. Yeah. So that is another motivation for trying to adapt to how they, how they dress, how they appear. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Here's just another pet inquiry of mine that I've always wondered about since I was probably in high school. I started thinking about it. Like, is it better to dress humbly or better to dress to impress? Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, sure. Here, you, you mean? Would, you would think Jesus had pretty scraggly clothing. You know, like you would think he, he was yeah. called you know really ugly. But then again, he never ministered in Spain, so... It's true. It's true. Uh, yeah. No, it, I mean, yeah, and I just... I, I don't, like, on church, let me put it this way. On Sundays, traditionally, a traditional church that we're from, we're from a traditional background, you'd wear a suit to church. But here, that's overkill. Here, that's like, whoa, you know, super serious. So I would say just to adapt to the culture I mean I try to dress a little more humbly if you will mm-hmm. uh, on Sundays and try to dress up a little more during the week interesting yeah so it's almost reverse to what you know tradition would dictate yeah um, you know and people can relate to that because a lot of times when they think oh this guy's a pastor he's a Christian there's almost this unnecessary expectation that they have to reach this certain level of morality with me right. and justify themselves towards me and I don't want them to feel that at all so if I can kind of just level the playing field even in a way as simple as dressing in a way that's more relatable to them then I'm going to do it yeah yeah you know okay I'm dying to dive into that next uh, what you're doing here but first just briefly sure. can you describe where we are physically right now like uh, right now we just had a good dinner some secreto iberico, it was called. Some kind of it was uh, so juicy it pork. Was, oh, it was oh my god! Crispy on the outside, and juicy oh, on the inside. It's perfect. Um, but it's a beautiful evening. Uh, perfect weather. Perfect. Absolutely. I mean, you the take what perfect passed. is in your mind, and that's what we're sitting in. Uh, but we're next to this. This is a Roman castle from Roman era, right? I, I don't even. know. I think. 
I don't know. Medieval, I'm sorry. It's from a, the medieval era. This castle is obviously several, several hundred, maybe even thousand years old. And it's this castle wall we're sitting next to. This is the Alcazar. Yeah. Have you gone in there? I have. It's... I haven't seen the gardens but that are inside, but I've seen. But I would say it's probably, good grief, that's probably a solid 50 feet high, maybe. 40 feet, I don't know. It's crenellated. It's one of my favorite odd That's an words awesome that I word. know. I've learned it's the you know the the shape the castle shape there. It's got that white picket slits, fence you know? look on exactly. top of it. Exactly. To kind of draw the picture for those of us <laughs> plebs who don't use that vocabulary. I just love that there's a word for that. Yeah. You know. Crenellated. Crenellated. Wow. Like somebody. You know, that's useful Some, to someone. Yes, there. to some like, architect, yeah, yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. But we're sitting at the base of this monument to Montañez and three other Spaniards. I'm assuming they're Spaniards. He's got a hammer and a pick. Yeah. Or a nail or a chisel. A chisel, it looks like. And it's a full life size monument statue of these four men. And then there's a big tower above it with a fifth guy on top of it, I think. <laughs> That's quite large. And then, obviously, we're just on the other side of this monument. There's the the uh, cathedral, uh, which is huge. Yeah. It's any cliche Catholic cathedral you could imagine in your mind. It's that and much more. I, I just have to point out my favorite detail, which is within sight right now, stone flames on the, the candles just lining the edge. Seriously? Like, those are flames That's, in stone. Really, they are? As far as I know. That's I, I mean, I haven't confirmed it, but... I, now that you say it, it looks like they that definitely could be the The ones design. in the distance are more definitely. These right here, they look like it too. Ah, but yeah, those even more so. Like, I, I, I need a, a lot longer to think about what that means, that I saw stone flames yeah. in Spain. And everything's just got this orange hue on it from the streetlights that are out tonight, and it's just very nice. But that is the color of Sevilla, that that hue. That, like, that night, color? Like, these lights are everywhere, and yeah. the walls are generally yellowish, and yeah. I think that color's called Alberto or Alberro. Yeah, Alberto. yeah, 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 yeah. Do you know the origin of it? I don't, do you? I asked huh. uh, Seviano, and he told me it's the sands of the arena. Of the what? The bullfighting. Oh, okay. Did not know that. So they, they're obsessed with it, so they paint it everywhere. Paint it on, yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> it's a great color. It's so rich. Yeah, it's, it is very traditional, very cultural here. Yeah. So. so it's appropriate that we're sitting next to, I think, the largest, like, volume cathedral in the world, the, the inside the space. Uh-huh. Because you here to build a church, right? which fascinates me, yes. to come in the shadow of this massive, massive symbol yeah. of, of uh, this church. Yeah, that's true. Tell me about that. Uh, well, <laughs> there's a lot to tell. <laughs> Where did the idea come from? The idea? Oh, I probably... Honestly, the idea has been very abstract at first where it's just kind of like I understand that I kind of felt God leading me to you know preach the gospel to be somehow involved in a foreign work you know not not stateside 
so and you're you're from Chicago actually, yeah we're from the suburbs of Chicago yeah same as me mm-hmm. which is just wonderful to yeah discover yeah. you here <laughs> it's a small world for sure but you know we we thought initially we my wife and I we were you know in college we were dating that's where we met and we both had the same kind of vision for our lives and so that was a big plus obviously since we liked each other um you know and so once we got married we just began to plan for for this for we didn't know what it looked like what we would be doing we just knew we were heading this direction when i say this direction into foreign missions work and specifically church planting you know missions can be a very broad terminology nowadays so um, but we're here with a specific purpose of planting churches that's I mean, in, in the vernacular here, it's evangelical churches, um, you know, just the with the express purpose of preaching about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And not only just that, but just serving the community. That's a big part of what we do here as well. I mean, obviously, we want to meet people's spiritual needs, but at the same time, I mean, you know, I think I see in the Bible where Jesus met a lot of people's physical needs, whether it was hunger or, you know they were somehow disabled and he met those physical needs and they were more apt to hear him mm-hmm. or to believe on him when those physical needs were met they were more more willing i think to spiritually invest in what jesus was saying so you know we have a, a social work here at the church where we collect food and clothing for people who might be on hard times um you know we want to do things like that like that'll just really be the um, I like to call the hands and feet of Jesus mm-hmm. so that way our theology is not just theology it's it's actually coming out of our lives mm-hmm. because we're truly captivated by this great love that God has bestowed on us showed us mm-hmm. this grace that he's given us and we want to share this with other people mm-hmm. so um, I don't know that's and- a summation right there from my point of view, it's been a success. I've been to the church and I've seen mm-hmm. it thriving. Uh, and I say that from my point of view. I don't know sure, what you no. would say. You'll probably modestly downplay that. But <laughs> well, uh, I have to, yeah, now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I kind of put, put you in the corner there. But uh, what does it take to build a church? Man. I mean, is this from scratch? I wish there was a formula that I could patent and sell because then I'd be wealthy. But there's not. Uh, it's, you know, the, we work with two other families that are Spaniards. They were Americanized. They grew up in the U.S., but they're from Spain, and now they've married American girls. They moved back here, and they planted this church here in this city center uh, in a town called Nervion about three or four years ago and so then we knew them before they came to Spain too we were friends we just didn't have any idea that we'd be working with them when we came here we thought we were going to go to the north part of the country and God just made it clear to us that based on our friendship and our similar vision for you know reaching the world with the gospel uh, to partner with these other two families and um, since doing and doing that we did that in August of last year 2015 we were able to because we came down we were able to help them divide their church and normally when you talk about splitting a church it's negative 
but in this sense it was purposeful and it was with the uh, desire of being able to better minister in another community where there were church members coming from this community but there was just no presence there as far as you know a local group of people that were coming to worship together and listen to the word being shared so we were able to split the church back in May and start a different church out of the first church in Nervion um, back in May and we now there's a second church in a town called Macarena a neighborhood called Macarena and it is in the northern part of the city and um, we remodeled the building and it's just I mean just this last Sunday between the two services we do morning services in Nervion we do the PM service in Macarena and just this last Sunday we had 97 people here you know between the two services so it's really God I mean, I would like to say we're professionals in our field, but we are truly not professionals in any sense of the word. And I'm not trying to be falsely humble here. We mess up a lot of stuff, but God has promised that his word's not going to return empty, void, if you will. Uh, And just being, stripping away from what people traditionally think of church, all the mumbo-jumbo about religion and preferences and, you know, you know, just standards and man-made things that kind of turn people off. And I'm not saying we're perfect, but I'm saying that we try to tear away from what church is, take away all the culture, westernized culture, even European culture. I mean, obviously that's going to be part of it, but take away the traditional mindset of church and just share Jesus and people like that I mean Paul said that the only thing that should be offensive about my message as a believer about sharing the gospel is the gospel itself I shouldn't be offensive to the people here the gospel message of Jesus Christ him crucified and offering you salvation by grace through faith is the only offensive thing that they should be hearing and And when they think about it, it's scandalous and it's beautiful to know that you're loved as much as you are by a God of the universe in spite of you being so bent on being a sinner, you know, by nature. So when people hear that, they're like, wow, so you're not going to judge us or condemn us? And we're like, man, you're you're loved and, and, and God's challenging you and calling you to come to him and just repent and be saved, be redeemed. And once you do that, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul's words were to the church in Rome. In Rome, So, we can be free. And when you talk about that freedom and liberty, that's exciting to people. Yeah. Okay, so here's my main question that I sure. am dying to ask you. Has it changed you coming here? Oh, man. Immensely. <laughs> Can I be kind of nerdy and, and quote Mark Twain? Please, please. Uh, I thought that would speak to you. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but <laughs> I think it, Mark Twain was the one that said that if you want to eliminate any kind of racism or prejudice you might have in your heart, then you need to travel. And no truer words have been spoken in regards to traveling. And it's really been that life-altering for us. Are you saying that you were a racist? (laughs) Well, (laughs) perhaps in some way, I I guess. Uh, 
but not in the common sense, I suppose. <laughs> Maybe just more close-minded. Let's okay, put it that okay, way. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean that's the cure right there. Because when you get out of your bubble and you start to see other people's context and other people's, you know, perspective, their traditions and habits and cultures kind of make a little more sense. Give an example that you've seen. Like, take, for instance, here in Spain. I mean, people eat about five times a day. <laughs> yeah. And their small meals, except for the main meal, which is, like, our lunch around 2, 2.30, and that's their big meal. And the reason I think they do that, just with, I guess, I don't know, the, the way the weather is here, um, people, uh, like, it'll get so hot during the day, sometimes in the summer, you'd, you'd be foolish to go outside. It's that miserable. So... You know, you eat around 2.30, you stay indoors, and then you go out to socialize and do things, you know, around 8 or 9. And you can be out at, in the evening until the early hours of the morning. Mm -hmm. And at first, that idea to us was just so foreign, like, what? Wait? But after we got to experience the, the change of the weather here, we're like, oh, that kind of makes sense because it's miserable without, <laughs> you know, it's miserable at the middle of the day. Yeah. So... You know, we'd like a lot of the things about the culture here, but, you know, being around the folks here, I mean, has changed us in the sense that our American way of thinking as far as church specifically, but even just, you know, personal practices and preferences as a Christian. Yeah, tell me more Calls about that, that into consideration. Well, I mean, we, you know, for us, our in our faith journey ourselves, we started questioning a lot of the status quo when we started traveling around the U.S. even. Um, we, both of us grew up in the Midwest, in Chicagoland area. I spent some time in Texas as a kid, but ultimately back in Illinois. And so there was a traditional way of thinking as a Christian. This is what we do. This is what we don't do. This is who we vote for. Examples. You know, I'm, well, I mean, just like, you know, we, here's one that's cultural. We uh, don't address adults by their first names as children. Interesting. And you come here to Spain and you try to address an adult. You tell your children to call this adult Mr. as one of the guys at church. His name is uh, Fran Francisco Vega. And he's 40-something. And if I tell my kids, you need to call him Mr. Senor Vega, he'll look at me and go, Mike, what's your problem? <laughs> Don't tell your kids to call me by my last name. My name is Fran, or Francisco. And for us, it's just like, whoa, really? Okay, I guess that's all right. Why do we do it that way in the States then? You know, so... Did you really... You had that moment? Yeah. Where you were, like, weighing that, like... Yeah, it was just weird. You were going to teach your kids that. And like, oh, yeah. Yeah, you realized. And yeah. somebody told us, they don't do that here. That doesn't fly, you know. And did you find an answer for why it's no. done that way in your community? No, no. <laughs> That's disconcerting. We were just blind sheep doing what we, you know, thought we should be doing. It'd be so interesting to know where that came from on it, the wind, how that landed in, and took root in your community, you know. Honestly, I mean, you know, I mean, given the fact, I mean, there's a lot of good moral people in the U.S., but, you know, 
just because something's preferential like that doesn't mean it's absolutely right or wrong. Yeah. You know, there's nothing wrong with doing it, and there's nothing wrong with not doing it. It's literally that, a, a preference, a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, so for us, I mean, you know, that's where we came from, and so we start to, we started to travel to raise money because we can't legally work here uh, unless we've been here for five years. We've only been here for three. So we had to raise money to support ourselves financially from other churches in the U.S. Yeah. Now, we traveled in about three years' time to 30 different churches. Yeah. Now, mind you, Baptist churches, all relatively similar. Um, uh, but even that, traveling, getting out of our little bubble in Chicago and seeing how other Christians were practicing their faith and worshiping and, and learning from the Bible, just in the U.S. for us was quite life-altering in the sense that we realized, wait a second, these other people are different from us, these other Christians. They, they don't do all the things we do. I mean, they, aren't they wrong? And then you realize, wait a second, God's still blessing them, and, and they're seeing fruitful things happen in their communities, even though they're not like us exactly. And it's like, whoa, wait a second. So maybe some of the stuff I thought was so important really isn't that important. And it makes you reevaluate and go back to Scripture and see what's actually in the Bible and what's not. So then you multiply that when you come to Europe, and that puts a whole new spin on it. And it's just like mind, your mind is blown just by seeing how these European Christians practice their faith. For example? I mean, just the idea of... The, here's a funny example, and I've told you this before. The first time we actually had an alcoholic drink was in church during communion. <laughs> And we had no idea it was coming. I mean, we just grew up not drinking any kind of alcoholic beverage. And we're sitting in a, a church, a gospel-preaching church in London, my wife and I. And they're passing the communion cup. And we took a sip and we're like, wait a second, that burned a little. <laughs> and we're like, we just drank wine in church. <laughs> and so you, you're like, wait a second, okay. And, and, and you come to Spain where the culture is just, it's so much about the different beers and wines and things like that. And you're like, can I truthfully tell these people that they shouldn't drink an alcoholic beverage? And it's like your whole world is just, your whole mind is just exploded because, I mean, we've never done this. This has always been wrong. I mean, think Prohibition era. Think, you know, uh, just abstinence from that kind of thing. And... Obviously, there is dangers in, in, in the use of alcohol, as there are in the, the misuse of whatever other substance. Even food, for example, can be dangerous when you, when you don't practice, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, moderation. Moderation, exactly. But, I mean, I had to look at the Bible. Yeah. And I had to look, and there's a case for it. Paul told Timothy the requirements for being a pastor or a deacon were to be not given to much wine that doesn't say not to be a drinker of. It says don't be given to it, as in drunk. Yeah. In other passages in Ephesians 4, it says not to be drunk with wine. Yeah. It says don't be drunk. It doesn't say don't drink. Yeah. So, and then he, Paul even tells Timothy, use a little wine for your stomach's sake. You know, you're sickly. You need to drink a little of that for your health. It's like, wow. But it's bad. <laughs> My culture said it was bad. And you have to stop and think, well, what does the Bible say? Because at the end of the day, I'm, I'm first and foremost a citizen of heaven before I'm a citizen of the U.S. or any other place. 
So I've got to be loyal to what, you know, my true country says yes. versus what my earthly one does. So those, there's been several things like that that have just been really challenging to us. What does that do to you as a person? Would you say that's been healthy or scary or both? Yes, absolutely to both. It's been scary at first, but once we were able to go, wait a second, God doesn't condemn me for this because it's not sin, then we're able to appreciate that liberty that we have. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, just we grew up Another thing, too, this is another cultural clash as well, if we have time for it, you think we have time, mm -hmm. was the idea of women not being able to wear pants. Now, I know that all of you listening are probably just, you need to pick your jaw up off the floor, <laughs> but that's how we grew up, is that women, it was a sin for a woman to wear pants. And if you look at the Christian culture in the United States from, you know, the, the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s, right as things were transitioning where women were having to go to work in order to provide for their homes because the men were at war or what have you, and they donned this so-called manly apparel at the time, it was. But when you look at Scripture, and, and, you know, this was the whole revolution of the woman, you know, and rebellion and all that stuff, so, or so it was called. But you look at Scripture and you're like, wait a second, does the Bible actually say that a woman shouldn't wear a pair of women's pants, you know, pants in general. No, it doesn't. This is a concept that we adapted from our cultural, you know, spot in history, and now we've taken it and applied a scripture to it that doesn't quite do it justice. Mm -hmm. And so we tried to maintain that standard, that viewpoint when we came here, and my wife was only wearing skirts. And if you talk about standing out like a sore thumb, just because you're an American, this made it 10 times worse. And people just would look at you and you're like, and even church people would come to you and be like, um, do, you, do you not have any pants to my wife? And so- How did she take that? She, was that really hard for It her? was very hard, very hard for her. And I'm a guy, so I, I mean, my dress doesn't really change coming from you know one spot to another. But as a woman, I feel really, I have a lot more respect and I guess empathy towards them with this issue but she shed a lot of tears over the fact of just actually having to face scripture because it's easy just to hide behind your tradition and not do the, the legwork in the Bible that says you know that, that requires you to search out the scriptures and find the answer for yourself it's easy to just go well we've always done it this way so we're all going to keep doing it this way but when you're, when you're forced with the idea of facing Scripture yourself and finding out that your tradition was simply that, a tradition, and not an actual scriptural command, that's scary. Because now you're challenging the status quo, and you're like rubbing the cat the wrong way, if you will. And it's going to make people that also value the same standard quite unhappy with you. But in all truth, truthfulness, you're being loyal to God not to some denomination or camp or group of people that, you know, have convinced you this is what the Word of God says. So that was a huge hurdle for my wife to get to the point where she could not say, it's wrong for me to wear pants. And she didn't even want to. But we were just challenged to consider it. Like, what are we going to teach the people at church? 
Are we going to tell them to hold the same standard that we as Americans held from some concept created back in the 50s? No. I can't do that with a straight face. I can't do that in all honesty. Yeah. So we had to search the scriptures, and it changed us. You know? That's beautifully told. It's fascinating. I mean, I'm so excited to meet you and to get to have these talks with you and, and learn about this process you're going through. I relate to it yeah. so much. Yeah. Uh, and you're so graceful <laughs> in it. It's just <laughs> exciting to see you. Uh, I don't know. I'm so thankful you've shared all this with and, me. Uh, and I'm, I just hope that we're able to share the same freedom that we have with other people. You know, that's, it's not easy, you know. I mean, Jesus said that, you know, if you're going to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. This idea that the Christian life is just a bed of roses is a far-fetched thing. But I'd rather take up the cross, the burden, the cross, a symbol of suffering, and know that I have an omnipotent God who's my Father that's caring for me and, 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 and sovereignly guiding me in love every step of the way, even if it's unpopular with the status quo or with, you know, the culture around me. You know, I'm, I'm living for a kingdom that's not of this world. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, by faith and through his power, I, I can follow him. And definitely we're not perfect. I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea. <laughs> we are not in any way good Christians, quote-unquote. I don't think there are any such things as good Christians. We're all Christians that are still stuck between the already and the not yet. The already being that of, you know, our salvation in Christ and the not yet of having a glorified body while we're no longer battle with sin. We're right there in the middle and we're just as human as the next person. The only difference is is we put our faith in Jesus Christ to redeem us from the sinful nature and tendencies we have. And that's our only hope. Mm -hmm. So... Let me ask you one more question. Yeah. Uh, what's your best travel story from any point in your life? Best travel story any point in my life? Wow, there are so many. Um, that is a great question. <laughs> okay. We were, <laughs> we were in upstate New York, and we, people say New York, you automatically think of New York City. New York is so much bigger Landwise than New York City, all the people are in New York City, but there's more to New York than that. So we were up in the you know in the sticks of New York somewhere, staying with a, a family at a church. We were at a church for a few days for some conference. Was this part of your? This was part fundraising. of our ta- yeah. fundraising time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so they're on this. They have this farmhouse out in literally the middle of nowhere, and we're there for four nights. They had never had. They have never. Ho- they had never hosted a guest missionary at their house before, so they had no idea what to expect. And it was so funny. Once I got to know them, the dad, the, the father of the home, he was about a little older than me, but he's like, "When you guys first were coming, I didn't know what to to do. If if you know, I needed to make sure to lead our family in you know Bible reading and prayer each night in front of you to make sure that we looked like the you know we were good people." And I was like, "Man, his name was Joe." Like, man. I'm a normal guy just like you. Don't think that. But here's the funny part is they, there were 13 of us in the house. Their family, our family, together made 13 people. There was one bathroom for four days. Oh, wow. And we were sleeping in his oldest daughter's bedroom 
obviously she wasn't, but they let us use her bedroom and her bed. She was about a 12-year-old girl, so her room was decorated nicely with ponies and, you know, <laughs> horses and princess stuff and girly things. And so, but she had a twin bed. <laughs> now, mind you, I'm 225 pounds, 5'10". My wife's 5'7". And we were sleeping on the same twin bed. And my two little boys were sleeping on this pull-out trundle thing that came out from underneath the bed. So here's the funny part is we're laying there in bed. I'm, like, angry to no end that we're sleeping in this twin bed. It's hot. I'm upset, you know, uncomfortable. And I'm just, you know, probably saying things I shouldn't be. And... I can't sleep and I'm like wife scoot over and she's like I can't I'm already on the windowsill and so then I tell her I said do you hear that do you hear that noise and she's like no what noise I said I think I hear a cat but it doesn't just sound like a cat it sounds like a, a kitten a baby cat for those of you who didn't know what a kitten was uh, and she said I don't hear it just go to sleep so we went to sleep next morning we're at breakfast with the family the, the father, the mother, all their children. Mind you, this is a farmhouse. They have lots of animals they care for. You know, a really, really neat setup. But the little girl who, in whose room we were sleeping, she goes, uh, Mr. Peters, uh, have, have, you, uh, have you seen my cat? She's pregnant, and she should be having her kittens any day now, and I just can't seem to find her. <laughs> I got up immediately from the table, ran upstairs to where our bedroom was, I pulled the trundle out from under the bed. There was a suitcase beyond that. I pulled the suitcase out, and there was Mama Cat with four baby kittens who still had their eyes sealed shut. So I'm just guessing at some point in time during our stay that this mother cat delivered her babies under the bed while I was in it. That's what I'm going to say. And that was one of those stories that was like, wow, I've done everything now. I've seen and done everything, you know. So, there's many more, but that was... Thank you so much to Mike for giving me some of his time on the steps of that monument outside the cathedral in Seville. I hope we meet there again soon. Thank you to everyone who came out to our live show in Chicago last night. I'll be publishing that episode next week. If you have a moment, take a look at kiva.org, K-I-V-A. It's a great way to spread the wealth and change the world. Thank you to Dana Boulay for her music, and thank you for listening. <laughs>